title of the sermon this morning is The Resurrection and Relentless Love. And funny story, I actually misspelled resurrection, and Matt McKenzie caught it like right before the service started, so that would have been really embarrassing. That's a hard word to spell, okay? Resurrection. But I hope that what I'm going to tell you today, I hope that it haunts you for the rest of your life. I I hope that what I'm going to talk about keeps you up at night. I hope that what I'm about to say, I hope throughout your day your mind keeps wandering back continuously to the same idea. And that idea is this, that Jesus is seeking you. We talk a lot about how we're looking for him, and we constantly forget about the reality that he looks for us way more than we look for him. Somebody asked Jesus why he came to the earth, and he answered why he came in Luke 19.10. He said, I, Jesus, have come to seek and save those who are lost. And this morning, I don't want you to do anything. I'm going to ask nothing of you except that you would look upon the reality that from the first breath you take on this earth to your last breath, that Jesus is seeking you. And that the reason why we are constantly plagued with questions of meaning and and why am I here and, and why does life happen the way it does and where did everything come from, that the reason that we are plagued with these questions is because God loves us and because he wants to direct our attention to what is truly important in this life. I mean, your whole birthday is centered around the reality that Jesus rose from the grave. Like we, we keep time based upon this event that happened 2,000 years ago. Everything centers. Like every time you, you mention the date that it's April 5th, like in a way you're worshiping him. Every time you celebrate a birthday, you say, oh, my birthday's on December 16th. Every time you say something like that, you are acknowledging what happened 2,000 years ago and that something happened that forever changed human history. And because he rose, today is a big deal. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. That's where we're going to be. And what I want to tell you this morning is this, is that Jesus embarrassed death to pursue you with a most relentless love. Jesus embarrassed death to pursue you with a most relentless love. Love, if you have your Bible, Luke 24, and would you stand with me at this time as we read God's word together? So Jesus has come and he has died and he has been buried. And we pick up right here in Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up here on the screen for you. Luke 24 says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, these men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man, which was Jesus, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to these 11 disciples and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. May God bless this word. You may be seated at this time. Just like Peter in verse 12, when it says he marveled at what had happened. Regardless of what you believe this morning, at the very least, you should be a little intrigued by Jesus. You know, we always celebrate really influential people and influential celebrities, you know. I mean, you sing one good song and all of a sudden people love you, right? You don't even have to write the song. You don't even have to produce the song. Just your voice gets slapped on a song, and all of a sudden you become a celebrity. And the song is popular for about three weeks, and then it's over, but you're forever a celebrity. And yet Jesus has changed more than any singular human that's ever lived in the entire human history. Jesus, at the very least in your heart, should be something that you marvel at. And what the scriptures say is that Jesus embarrassed death. That he was dead, but then he was risen. And it would logically make sense that if if one man were to rise from the dead, that he would then be the most influential man in human history. And it would make sense that the book that was written about him, which is the Holy Bible, that it would be the most read and the best-selling book of all time. And it would make sense that of any singular people group in the world, the Christian church makes up the largest people group in the world. Christianity as a whole is larger than any other religion, any other worldview, any other belief, and any other country when you add us all up. Something is going on here. Something here is worth marveling at. And what the scripture says and what Luke 24 proclaims is that what happened here, what changed everything was the reality that Jesus embarrassed death. And I think we focus a lot on Jesus being like this really nice guy, you know. Uh, I think some of our, our perceptions of Jesus are a little weak sometimes, to be honest. Like I think our image of Jesus is like a really nice, sensitive kind of guy. Walks around wearing a perfect white dress. He's got really long hair, and he's, he's like super good looking, and he's like saying all these pithy statements that nobody understands, but it kind of tickles their ears. And, and this image of him, he's like, he's, like, he's like lying in a grass field wearing a dress with long hair that he's combing, all while petting a baby lamb. Like that's our, that's our image of Jesus. 
He's either like the mysterious man of Fu Manchu or he's like this really sensitive guy that is kind of like the dude that's in the notebook who says all the right things at the right time. That's our image of Jesus. And yet the guy was murdered and then rose from the grave like it was nothing. He kicked death to the curb like it was a Tuesday, and he began to change all of human history by one simple act. He embarrassed death. Have you ever been embarrassed? What happens when you get embarrassed? You get put in your place, don't you? The most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me, and I've shared this story before, is when I first met my wife, I knew she was a collegiate runner. I knew she was fully scholarshiped. But I thought, even though she's a really good runner, I'm a guy. So that naturally means I'm a better runner than she is. And so we decided one night, or I decided, we were going to go on a run together. Went out. It was a summer night. It was cool. I had no excuse. And before she even got done with her warm-up, I was like, <gasps> I was like, I was like, I was dying. And it was the most embarrassing moment of my entire life. The most embarrassing moment, because this girl that I'm trying to woo, that I'm trying to impress, who I thought I was going to give her some tips on how she could become a better runner, she destroys me. Like, yeah, maybe you kick up your leg a little bit more and you you get some better momentum. And I'm like, over here, I can't breathe. I'm like keeling over. And I actually stopped at a neighbor's house who I knew in the area so I could get some water because I was just in really bad shape and it was horrible. And I'll tell you this. For the rest of my life, I have never once tried to assert myself athletically to my wife. It put me in my place. (laughs) And when I say Jesus embarrassed death, what I mean is that he put death in its place. He put death under his feet. You see, here's the problem, church. Satan always bullies us with death. Like, death always, like, stands over us like it's about to, like, beat us up or something. We're so afraid of it, aren't we? It's like the one thing we all have in common. It's like this death thing that, it's like C.S. Lewis called it the cold hand of death that always kind of resides on our back. And we're we're scared of it, and, and Satan causes us to live in fear because of this thing of death. And yet when Jesus rose from the grave, he put death in his place. He put death behind him. As the psalm says, oh death, where is your sting? We sing that song constantly. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he said, anybody who believes in me, I'm not going to only pay for your sins on the cross which the cross, might I add, is the most recognizable symbol in the history of humanity. Not only am I going to pay for your sins, not only do you get my atonement on the cross, but you also get my resurrection and my new life. When we believe in Jesus, we belittle death. If you don't believe in Jesus this morning, death will bully you until the day that it finally beats you up. So Jesus is powerful. He's not just a long-haired guy petting a lamb in a field, right? But that's not even the craziest part of all this. 
The craziest part of all of this is that that Jesus, who made death look as if it was nothing, pursues you. That Jesus is so madly in love with each and every one of you. The powerful king of all of creation seeks out John Wethington. And every one of you in this room this morning, he is always pursuing you. He is constantly coming after you. But here's the problem, is we don't pursue him. You see, Jesus loves us too much to ever force his love upon us, but he is constantly pursuing us. And one of the most interesting stories that happens right after the resurrection is a story uh, called The Two Men on the Emmaus Road. And what happens is after Jesus is risen from the dead, word is getting out that he's not there anymore. And there's these two men who had been followers and disciples of Jesus, and they're walking on this road to this town called Emmaus, which is kind of close to Jerusalem. And they loved Jesus. They were with him. They wanted him to be the king, but then he got killed, and so it kind of ruined everything, right? And they wanted this guy to be it, but then he was dead. And so these two guys are walking on this road, uh, just talking to each other. They're kind of downcast. They're kind of sad because the guy they thought was Jesus or the king wasn't really him because he's dead, and you can't be the king who's victorious if you die. Now can you? And they're walking on this road, and they're talking about everything that's just happened. And this mysterious guy begins walking with them. And that man is actually Jesus, but for whatever reason, it's not actually Jesus in terms of their perception. Like, it's Jesus, but, but Jesus kind of hides himself from being known that it's really him. And I love this story because it reminds me that Jesus is a lot more mysterious than we often think he is. And that oftentimes Jesus is walking alongside us in ways in which we don't even know. And so Jesus walks up to these guys, but they don't know he's him. And he's like, hey, what are y'all talking about? I can tell something's going on. And he says, uh, they say, well, have you not heard? Everyone knows. Like this guy, Jesus, who was supposed to be the king, he was supposed to be the guy that fixed everything, but now he's dead. And we can't find him. And they begin telling him it, it stinks and it's horrible and we're, we're so downcast, we're so depressed. And Jesus says, well, well, wasn't this Jesus guy, wasn't he supposed to die on the cross? And Jesus begins, though they don't know it's him, he begins walking them through how everything that has happened in his life, how it is in line with the scriptures and what the scripture said must happen for the world to be redeemed. It said that God had to send a sacrifice and that sacrifice would have to redeem creation and that would, he would die and on the third day he would rise. And so Jesus begins talking to these guys and walking and how maybe this guy Jesus really was who he said he was. And they come to the end of the road. And Jesus acts as if he's going to keep walking on. And they said, no, 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 it's, it's too late. Please, please come share a meal with us. And they invite this man in who they don't know who he is. And the scripture says they begin breaking bread together. And that when Jesus blesses the food that they're about to eat, all of a the sudden they realize, this is Jesus. And then he vanishes. And then they believe. And every person's life is kind of like the Emmaus Road. Every person's life is kind of like this journey. And, and we all have different lives, and we're all on different journeys. And what I believe with everything in me 
as we're walking down the, the journey that is our life, that eventually Jesus shows up to us in somehow, some way. That as we're walking on this journey, that, that Jesus somehow begins to invade our lives. And would I submit to you that maybe many of you in this room, you don't realize it, but Jesus is already walking with you. And it's scary when you begin to realize that all the events of your life, when you begin to look for Jesus and where he's active and, and if he's in there, you begin to see different traces of him, and yet you never knew it was him the entire time. And what the Emmaus Road shows us is that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead, okay? He didn't just rise from the dead and hang out at the tomb. He pursued the disciples. He pursued the women who were looking for him. He pursued the men in the Emmaus Road. He didn't just like hop out the tomb, wait outside, kick his leg up and like look at his clock, waiting for everyone to get to him because he was the big show. No, no, no. He gets out of the tomb, which we talk about a lot. What we don't talk about is he comes after you and me. That Jesus pursues each and every one of us with a relentless love. And I guarantee you that this morning he is speaking to you in your life in a million different ways. He is seeking you in a million different ways. But the problem is this, is that we're not really seeking him. Jesus loves you. It is the simplest truth of the scriptures, and yet it is the most profound. He is God, and he loves you intimately and personally. And the reason why Christianity is different than every other religion and thought in the world is because other religions, other thoughts, Hinduism, Buddhism, they, they teach you how to be a better person. They teach you how to do right things. They teach you how to live the right way. But here's the problem at the core of all those beliefs. Nobody loves you. There's no personal God who loves you and who desires you. And the scandalous part of the life of Jesus, who was God, is that it makes this wild claim that God loves us personally, even to the point of dying for all of our mistakes on the cross and rising to new life, that he would then seek us out and offer it to you and to me. I heard this story this week that I found very powerful. It was a story of a, of a young married couple in the 1970s living in Canada. It was a young married couple with a three-year-old little boy. In the 1970s, they were living a wild, crazy life, like many of us tend to do. Having fun, living for the moment. Drinking maybe a little bit more than they probably should, having a good time. Everything was fun until it wasn't fun anymore. And this married couple begins fighting and arguing. This married couple begins to feel like maybe marriage isn't worth it. And one day the husband of this wife and the father of this three-year-old little boy decides he doesn't want to be a dad anymore, doesn't want to be a husband anymore. And so that man gets on a plane in the 1970s, to leave his wife and his kid forever and never come back. Flies out from Canada in the late 1970s and lands here in Houston, Texas. Begins trying to start a new life for himself. Begins looking around for a job. Begins looking at oil and gas, which was booming then in the 
the late 70s, early 80s here in Houston. And while I was looking for a job, he befriends this man in oil and gas, and, and this man, out of nowhere, invites him to a Bible study randomly. And this guy who had left his wife and left his kid, I mean, left his wife and kid, was never planning on coming back. He's kind of lonely, he's depressed, he's down, life isn't going well, having trouble finding a job. So he thinks, oh, what could a little church hurt? So he goes to this Bible study, he studies the scriptures with these people in this house. He's moved by the things that he's seeing, and so he decides to go to church that Sunday. It was actually a church right down the road for us called Clay Road Baptist. And this man who had left his wife and left his kid goes to the church service feels compelled as if like God is seeking him and God is coming after him and God is pursuing him to give him the love he's always wanted but that he's been running from him so long. And he finally, in a city where he knows nobody, having left his wife and kids, he gives his life to Jesus on a Sunday and that day goes to the airport, buys a plane ticket, and flies back to Canada to be with his wife and kid. And that three-year-old little boy is a guy, a politician that many of you know, his name's Ted Cruz. I'm not telling you to vote for anybody, it's not a political statement. It's just a good story. And Ted Cruz's father always shares that story. Because he says, I was literally running from everything that was good in my life. I was running as far away from God as I could possibly get, and I ran into his arms. I found Jesus when I was leaving my wife and kid. I wasn't even seeking him out. I was doing the exact opposite of it. And in the process of looking for a job so that I could create a life away from my wife and kid, doing everything that I knew was morally wrong, Jesus just happens to pop up out of nowhere. And I ran away, but I ran into his loving arms. It's kind of like the Emmaus Road where these guys are depressed and they're not believing and they're walking to this town and they've given up hope and out of nowhere when they're walking away, Jesus shows up. And it's funny how Jesus pops up in the, the most opportune times in our lives. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've been running away from God. Maybe you've been running as fast as you can in the other direction, and somehow, by God's love for you, his relentless pursuit of you, you wind up at White Oak Baptist Church on April 5th, 2015, listening to some young preacher tell you about how much Jesus loves you. See, Jesus rose from the grave so that he could pursue each and every one of us with a most relentless love. And so if this is true, if we know that we're broken humans and that we need Jesus, that without God, we're empty, that if God is life and we're apart from him, that means that if we're away from life, that means we're in death, right? And if this is really true, that this morning, that each and every one of us, that God offers us love, that he, he rose from the dead to pursue you, you, not just this ambiguous idea of, of people or humanity, like, like you, like John Wethington, like Wesley Bates, 
like Ken Lubeck, like that, that God has, has pursued each and every one of us. And if he's really behind us and if he's really coming for us, then what do we do? How do we respond? And all you have to do to find the risen Jesus who is pursuing you is simply turn around. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. We often don't see God because we're not looking at God. You see, the thing about eyesight is you can see, but you can't see everything at once. And I thought to illustrate this, we do something a little bit fun. And so, well, it's not really fun, but it's going to be interesting. Everyone look at me, okay? Now, I'm about to ask you a question. And when I ask you this question, promise me you will not turn around, okay? Everyone look at me. Look forward at me. I, I want to see every eye. Every eye. Let me see. Okay. You see me? Okay. Now, you're going to be tempted to look around when I ask you this question, but just don't do it or you'll ruin the illustration, okay? Everyone look at me. Okay. In your head, try to answer this question. This is going to be great. I've been watching Psych, and they do this a lot. What color is the stained glass? Don't look around. Don't look back. In your mind, okay? I'm looking at it. I can see it. The stained glass that's up here, that's been up there forever, the whole time you've been going to this church, think in your mind, what color is it? Now answer me this question. Are your eyes open? Do you have sight? Can you see? Are you blind? But why can't you answer that question? Because you're not looking at it. See, the interesting thing about eyesight, like I said, is you can see, but you can't see everything at once. You can only logically see the things you're looking at. All right, you can look now if you can see it. It's red and green, yellow, purple. I've been going to my whole life. I had no idea what the colors were. And now you're looking this way. You're looking at me, right? And we're actually about to remodel the stage, but as of this week, we're actually starting remodeling it next week, but as of now, it's just straight black, right? And, and you're, you see all this black. And it is impossible for you to be looking at this stage. To, all you're seeing is black. It's impossible for you to be looking this way at that and see all the white that I'm looking at back here. And your entire life, you get to choose what you look at, and you get to choose what you see. And the same way that the psalmist says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. We often don't see God because we're not looking at him. And if it is true that Jesus is risen from the dead, and that he's pursuing you, and that he's pursuing me, if he's always there for us, if he's always right behind you, if he's always coming after you, if he's pursuing you from your first breath to your last breath, then our response is this. You turn around, and you look at him. Prayer 
is the art of turning around. Reading the Bible is looking at God. And the problem is we fill our eyes and our lives with every sort of evil, every sort of everything that is not God. And then we say, God, I can't see you. You're not there. Maybe it's just a myth. Maybe it's just a tale. And yet for those of us who have looked, we can assure you, God is actually probably the easiest thing to find in this world. There was an article that Time Magazine released. It was called The Science of Happiness. Super intriguing. It was a study done by Stanford, Yale, and Harvard University. So you know it's legit, right? I mean, this is like as good as it gets, right? And they took this massive group of people and they were attempting to find scientifically why people are happier than other people, okay? And so they made this like huge study and they, 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 uh, they, they ranked people in terms of happiness and they gave everybody a percentile, right? And so everybody, after they took this test, they were like, oh man, I'm in like the fourth percentile of happiness. That's not bad. That's not good, right? And so they, they took all these people and what they did to really, really, really drill down to it and to really find, like, what is the difference between people who are happy in this life and people who are not happy? Like, scientifically, let's use data, let's use research to find out why people are happy and why other people are not happy. And so what they did is they ranked all these people, and they took the top 10% of the happiest people. So they took the happiest people, and they sat them over here. And then they took the, the, the people who were the least happy, the bottom 10%, the people they referred to as the depressed people, and they put them over here, Okay. And what they did was they took the most happy and the least happy and they compared these two side by side to see what is the big difference? What is the theme? What is the, what is the thing that separates these two people? And the first thing that they looked at, because this is what most people think, they said, well, probably, because, you know, science is all about testing a hypothesis. They're like, we feel like usually most people would think that the difference between a happy person and an unhappy person is the life that they've lived the things that they've experienced. These people have had a lot of happy moments. These people have had a not a lot of happy moments. And what they found, the first thing they scientifically proved was that these two people they were studying, their lives were almost exactly identical in terms of the things that had happened in their lives. So these people had experienced just as much tragedy as these people had experienced. And these people had had just as much life transition as these people. And, and these people had just as many fun moments in their life as these people. Side note, they said that happy people tend to journal more. So just, that's for you, okay? So people who journal tend to be happier, okay? Side note, right? There's this, there's this idea that depressed people journal, but that's not true scientifically, so that's a lie. So they had all the happy people, all the unhappy people, and at the end of this research that lasted for an entire year, they boiled it down to one word. Scientifically, based on research, the one word that separates people that are really happy as opposed to people who are not happy. And your mom probably told you this growing up. The one word is attention. I quote, they said, your happiness is determined by how you allocate your attention. These people's lives were no happier in terms of the circumstances than these people. But they said that the people that were happier, they tend to focus more whenever they ate a really good, tasty meal. They tend to be more dialed in whenever they were with their kids at a playground. 
The people that were happier tended to believe that the more they focused on the good things in their life, the happier they would be. And I love this. Because it's exactly what we're talking about this morning. That your life will be defined by the things that you look at. If all you ever look at is work, or anxiety, or your problems, or your struggles, or how you hate your body image, or that relationship that didn't go well, or that parent that left you, or that spouse that, that hates you, or, or that, that tragedy, or that, that, person that, that time that person died. If, if, if we look at these things, our life begins to be defined by these things. And yet what the resurrection shows us is that God is madly in love with you and he is pursuing you and he is always coming after you. He's gonna walk alongside you in your Emmaus road. You can run away from him and you're gonna always be one step away from running into his arms. And the way that we respond to this call, the way that we walk into his love is to simply turn around and to let him love us. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer or you're not sure if you're a Christian or, or if you don't know if you're close to God or what that looks like, the Bible says that all men have fallen short and women too. Not just men, all women too. That we're all broken people. I'm a pastor and I'm a broken guy. And that because we're broken, we have a hard time seeing God because we're constantly looking at our sin. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die to make a statement. He died to wash you white as snow. And the scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. It is the message that is rocked to the world for 2,000 years. It is the message that has brought billions of humans to their knees in realization that they need Jesus. It's the message that has followed people who have been running from God for thousands and thousands of years. And you and I are no different. The resurrection isn't just something that we look at. The resurrection is something that we accept. It's something that we look at and that we allow to, to define our lives. And as we close today, we're going to close, and, and you've got three options. Uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a moment after I pray. And what we're going to do is, is we're going to um, have an opportunity where the deacons are going to be holding the Lord's Supper, and we can come forward and receive it. And this is a time for, for Christians to remember the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus on their behalf. And if you're a believer this morning and you're walking with Jesus, then we want to invite you to come forward and to partake of that supper, to, to live in that this morning. But maybe some of you, maybe you need to pray. 
maybe you're a Christian, but you've kind of wandered a little bit, and, and you're just like, man, you're right. I, I've been looking at everything else but God. I, I, my life is, is so far from him. It's because I've been looking at the world, and I want to turn my eyes back on Jesus. We want to open up this altar for you. If you want to come up and pray, you can bring someone up to pray with you, and you can do that as we're coming forward to take the Lord's Supper. Well, the third option is this. I'll be standing right here when everyone's walking forward to get the Lord's Supper. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I would love to talk with you. If you've never been baptized, I would love to talk with you. I would love to help you in this process of fixing your eyes on Jesus and turning your eyes from the world. I needed it. And I bet you do too. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for for drawing us out this morning. God, would you make the resurrection real to us in our hearts? Would you focus our eyes on you, Lord? God, I pray for every person in this room right now, Lord. I I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts to how much you love them. God, that we would look at your love and that we would see it, that we would read the scriptures and that it would set our hearts on fire like the men when they were mysteriously talking to Jesus on the Emmaus Road. Jesus, would you invade us this morning? And as we come forward to partake of the Lord's Supper, would you just remind us how much you love us? And God, if there's anybody in this room who has never began walking with you, who, who doesn't know what they believe, but is so intrigued by Jesus and they, they want this to be true, I pray that you would prick their heart with the gospel that they would see that everything they've ever desired is in the name of Jesus. Lord, I love the people that are sitting here in this room. I love each and every one of them because you love them. And you're pursuing them, Lord, the same way that you're pursuing me. Lord, I pray that as we come to the Lord's Supper now, this would be a very important and heavy moment that we would take it seriously, Father. And that we would turn our eyes to what you did for us on the cross. And the reality that three days later, you rose again. Move in our hearts during this time, Jesus. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.